Welcome to the Valhalla Movement Podcast. We've got uh, today a very special guest, but before that, we've got some special co-hosts. Uh, first time feature, I guess, on a live podcast at this point. Uh, Lawrence. What's up? <laughs> and Nick. And uh, today we've got, I mean, a man of many talents and, and a, 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 literally a legend, in, in my opinion, in eco-villages and, and the whole sustainable movement and, and eco-village movement as a whole. Um, Albert Bates, thank you for being here with us. Thank you, and you know, legends all fade. So, <laughs> I'd rather not be a legend, but you know, I'll take it. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> um, I mean, looking over some of your history, some of the work that you've done in the past, I mean, everything from lawyer to author to director of all kinds of different initiatives from Gen to you name it, I mean, you've, you've made it, you've it seems like you've created inventions. Um, I mean, maybe maybe let's start with a little bit of a background. So for some people who don't necessarily know you, maybe go over kind of where where did this all begin with you and then and what have you kind of weaved in and out of, um, you know, in the short form version of that? Uh, well, I grew up in Connecticut and uh, in suburbia, white bread suburbia. And if you've ever seen an episode of Mad Men on TV, that was the life that my parents were having. Uh, my father was an ad man on, on Madison Avenue, and he commuted into New York every day. And um, that was sort of, I completely relate to that television series. That was my childhood. Mm. Um, but, uh, but then uh, moving on, I, I was off at summer camp in Maine in my high school years. And... The nice thing about that was being out in the wilderness, you know, getting out to the forest, uh, being on a lake where you could canoe, going up to uh, the mountains, Appalachian Mountains, and climbing around the Presidential Range and things like that. And just getting inspired by the teacher that nature is and understanding our role from a very tactile way of, you know, tiny little creatures inhabiting this rock floating through space, supported by this vast web of natural world. And so that kind of was very formative. And when I finished school, which in my case was uh, law school in New York City, I wanted to get back to some sense of sanity before I went on into whatever career I was going to go into. And I was thinking of a law career, and I had offers for jobs and things. Paid very well, were good, good jobs in New York City, doing good stuff. But um, I wanted to get back to the country, so I... I hiked the Appalachian Trail from north to south. Uh, and I emerged in Tennessee, not going all the way down to the Georgia terminus, but getting off at, at uh, Clingman's Dome, the highest point in the eastern Appalachians, mm -hmm. and um, deciding to go visit the farm, which was in Tennessee, because I'd heard about it. Mm -hmm. And it was just starting up as a hippie commune. This was 1972. It had been there on that land for less than six months or something when I was on the trail, and so I hitched over and landed at the farm in November of 1972, and thinking only to stay a couple nights, maybe, and they, the first thing they said was, um, well, you know, the place is full right now, we're not really taking any visitors, uh, so um, sorry, and I said, well, you know, I just walked a thousand miles, uh, I think I could maybe just camp here for a night. Uh, <laughs> And so, yeah, okay, all right. So I stayed the night, and that, that night they were actually working all night. They had a, a huge scene going. It looked like Cape Canaveral the day before a launch of a major space vehicle, mm -hmm. now Cape Kennedy. And uh, they, they had this um, uh, bus that they were retrofitting. It was an old Greyhound bus that they were making into a band touring bus. And they had a huge equipment truck for the roadies, and they were, they were retrofitting these so that they could sleep people on them and have kitchens and be able to move this band. And they were going to launch an album, and the album was going to travel around and hit every radio station in the country and uh, try to get play. And so that was the plan. And uh, I was arriving at the very moment, the evening before the launch. Okay, so there's this hubbub of activity. Perfect timing. Yeah, perfect timing. So in the morning, I ran into a Stephen Gaskin at the front gate, and I said to him, uh, he's the, the kind of the organizer of the, of the farm, the original founder, and I said to him, uh, hi, I'm coming down from New York, and I'm 
here for a visit. You think it'd be all right if I stay for a little while? And he said, uh, uh, well, I don't know. Uh, um, we we're kind of closed while the band's out. We don't really want to take any visitors. And I said, well, you know, how many people on that tour? 50, 40? There's a lot of empty beds. Maybe I could have one of those empty beds till y'all come back. And so he laughed and, and he let me stay. And so they were gone and that winter was called Wheatberry Winter. It was the first winter of the farm and it was um, the point at which the food ran out and there was no money and no work and people were down to eating wheat berries uh, in a variety of forms, uh, trying to ferment them into tempeh and uh, have them in uh, soup and, you know, whatever. <laughs> so that was Wheatberry Winter. And I, I lasted through that and um, uh, Stephen came back with the tour and the bus and I went to see him immediately afterwards and said, uh, you know, I've fallen in love with this place. You know, for me, coming off the Appalachian Trail, the hardship of living in a tent on a, with a dirt floor uh, in winter was not that great uh, because I was a camper. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for me, it wasn't that big a deal. And I had fallen in love with sitting around at night looking at um, um, books uh, like uh, uh, the stories of Don Juan, Carlos Castaneda series, or um, Huey Nang and the Diamond Sutra, the, the Seventh <laughs> Patriarch. These are the books that got saved because the rest, when they needed to start fires, they would have to sacrifice certain books for fire starter. Mm -hmm. So the ones that got kept were the ones that were the most valuable, the most important to people, that they didn't want to part with. So <laughs> that's what we had in the library to read. Uh, and then people sitting around with guitars and harmonicas at night in the tents um, by the wood stove and just having a good time and, and, and it was an elevated conversation. Coming out of law school and walking into this, it could have been any group of PhD candidates uh, talking about philosophy and religion and stuff. It was just very elevated discussion with all of this fairly literate group. And then, um, so, so I said to Stephen, you know, I'd like to stay and, and he said, uh, uh, sure. And I said, well, that wasn't hard. I was <laughs> expecting an initiation or something. And, and he said, he said, you thought that wasn't hard? <laughs> I'd just been through Wheatberry winter, you know, and living in a tent with a dirt floor for three or four months in mm -hmm. the snow. So, yeah, that was, that was, but that was the initiation. And uh, so, okay, fine. Uh, from there, it was um, forget law school. You know, I think Chico Marx once said in, in a... Um, in any community, if you have just one lawyer, he's got no work. If you've got two, there's more than they can do. <laughs> uh, so one lawyer in that community, it was really no use for me. And um, uh, so I went on to become a, a farmer and a horse trainer and a flour miller and um, kind of a stonemason, working in different kinds of things, whatever seemed to be needed. Uh, people would sort of gravitate to fill voids whenever we, they appeared. And so that was the, the, the central education that I then had as a postgraduate uh, mm -hmm. in, in sustainability, okay? Sustainability 101 as a postgraduate. Uh, and it's like learning how to be a plumber, learning how to be a mason, learning how to, uh, you know, build with bamboo. So would you say that sustainability and adaptability are synonymous? Yeah, resilience is a better word than sustainability. Sure. I recently had a visit down at the farm from uh, Eric Asadorian, who was the editor of the current State of the World Report, which is about, uh, is, I think the title of the 2013 version is, Is Sustainability Still Possible? Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, funny cartoons that Eric has in that is this um, chart using Google word inwards or insights uh, to track the use of the word sustainability as far back in the literature as Google Scholar or Google digitized books go. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so they start to use, see the word sustainability appear at the beginning of the 20th century and then gradually move up in the mid 20th century and then, and then suddenly take off in the 70s and 80s and now you're starting to see it increase by this steady 12-15% per year growth rate uh, and then you can do the doubling times and chart that farther out and extract it out and by uh, 2036 it will be in every sentence in the English language and by <laughs> 29, uh, 21 9 it's going to be every single sentence will just be made up of the word sustainability. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the limitations I, of Google. Uh, yeah. Google well, no, but the thing. Well, it's also limitations of of trying to project the future from trends of the past. That's true. But uh, you know, it, it, there's there's a there's a something to that in the sense of sustain a babble. You know that we we tend to use things to death and then corrupt them with greenwash and things like that. What do we really mean by that? So if you ask me. Was it an education in sustainability? I'm a little reticent to even use the word. Mm -hmm. uh, I would prefer to say something like, yeah, resilience, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's learning to be adaptable. It's learning to be creatively adaptable. Mm -hmm. and, and this is really the skill of, an, of appropriate technologies. What's appropriate in this point for the least amount of work and the greatest efficiency and the least cost and so forth? Mm -hmm. And so you start to learn to adapt creatively to fill needs from the very minimum that you can, you can use. So many different people have a different versions of what, how sustainable or resilient we should be, right? Mm -hmm. Where does that lie for you? Like, what, what do you think that the average person should strive to be more sustainable with or, or be more resilient with? Is it, you know, at Valhalla and what we do, we talk a lot about food, water, energy, shelter, and then but also having 21st century kind of comforts, okay, and using and not trying to sacrifice all those things, still using technology and all these things to move forward, right? Which differentiates us from I know, the extreme version of, let, let's say, the Amish. But the reality is everyone has a different definition of it. I would be curious to know with somebody of your experience in this um, and, you know, how much you've seen that you've talked the talk, but walked the walk, and you've seen tons of people do everything in between. What would you be your definition of that? Okay, so you've got a solar budget. This is our energy that comes every single day. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a lot more than we're using or capturing or taking advantage of. Mm -hmm. Most of the work that it does is photosynthesis. Most of the work goes to a combination of plants and bacteria and things, and they take advantage of it. But the tiny percentage that we use, um, we're now using as much or more fossil energy than we're using solar for most things and we would be better off if we could switch out of that fossil account and as quickly as possible and into uh, a daily income from the sun mm -hmm. but um, as a practical matter you have to look at what does that entail and what services are we getting right now from fossil fuels that would be very difficult to replace with solar and how realistic and what kind of embedded energy is in the infrastructure and all those kinds of questions so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a math issue to some extent. If you look at um, the recent Wagernall work with uh, f uh, ecological footprinting mm -hmm. and asking the question of how much land does it take to support the population based on what's grown on the land and so forth and uh, to absorb our wastes and yada, yada, yada. Okay, well, we in the um, first world are currently using about four planets here in North America about mm -hmm. four planets mm -hmm. Europe and, and Eastern Europe particular and, and Southern Europe maybe about three planets uh, and then you have um, the Latin America Asia Africa about two planets India about two planets and then the native peoples indigenous peoples traditional ways of living about one planet and that's actually where everybody has to get to, back down to that original way of doing things hundreds mm -hmm. of years ago of living within the one planet budget. And well, hundreds of years ago, we didn't have seven billion people on the planet. Um, that's been the, the one-time boost from fossil fuels. And so um, now we have to think about how do you get back to that one planet budget with seven billion Mm -hmm. and uh, going on 9 billion, going on 12 billion from the demographics of aging and so forth and how many children in the population. Um, so it's a challenge, a huge challenge. And a lot of the predictions have to do with die-off. Well, there's going to be disasters and you're going to have to have especially natural, natural disasters from, as a result of climate weirding. Mm -hmm. uh, and that'll kill off a large part of the population. Water issues especially start to do things like fracking and desperation. Then you have bigger water issues. And so you start to have these uh, constraints on population. Uh, I, I was recently at this conference, and um, this scientist I know, um, Hugh McLaughlin, um, came up with it. He wanted a... A, num a, a, a metric that he could use, a standardized metric for arbitrary deaths, useless and senseless deaths caused by climate change. And he came up with the Stalin. One Stalin is 10 million useless, unnecessary deaths. 
Uh, and so he said, okay, when the United States decided not to join the Kyoto Protocol, um, they probably earned about 30 Stalins right there. Mm. Uh, and that you have 3 billion people probably going to die as a result of climate change by IPCC projections over the next half century uh, from storms and from other weirding events. Mm -hmm. So those 3 billion people, that's um, 100 Stalins. Uh, or, sorry, 300 Stalins. So we've got 300 Stalins to give out now as awards to who people, you know, Lord Moncton, he's worth at least 10 Stalins. Uh, people who are, who are actively working to create this arbitrary, unnecessary death toll. Mm -hmm. uh, um, the Koch brothers, they're probably worth 100 Stalins. Oh. Uh, so, you know? <laughs> Tons of them. Yeah. So really, um, how do we get down? What's the descent curve that gets us to stability? Uh, long term within the budget and the solar daily blessed budget How, what's this what's the formula that gets us on a nice smooth descent curve and it's not going to be likely to be the same ascent as the mirror image of the ascent curve in the ascent curve you had Colonel Drake discovering fossil fuels you had the Texas uh, spindle top you had all of the Urals in there and the, or the Bakan fields being developed in Armenia all these kinds of things, you start to get um, this 2% per year steady growth for 150 years of mm -hmm. fossil use. It's not going to look like 2% decline per year going on the downslope. There's that sort of concept that, well, we have a mirror image. That's what peak oil is. It's this nice little sine wave. <laughs> yeah, and probably and it's probably not. It's, it's actually, some people project something like an old divide curve, which is that you because of the pollution component and the other things that we've built into the, to the process now, the loss of species and the various other degradations of the atmosphere, nitrogen cycle and so forth, that probably we're going to hit a steep cliff and go down. Um, and then, then there's uh, John Michael Greer who's talking about catabolic collapse, which is to say you take a stair step down. You get down, you have a fall, and then you sort of stabilize for a while, you adjust to that new normal, and mm -hmm. you sort of adjust to the point where it seems normal again, uh, and then you take another step down. Yeah. So it's a stair step down, Seriously that's close. catabolic collapse. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, however it, in, it, it involves, it's probably, you know, imagine, uh, let's just say, a 7% decline rate. That's easy to imagine because it's that's uh, doubling every 10 years if you're going up and having going half every 10 years if you're going down. Mm -hmm. So what does a 7% slope look like? It means here we are in 2013, 2023, half the cars on the road, half the roads being built, half the um, um, built environment, half of the uh, electricity, half of the everything else. Uh, mm -hmm. That's a 7% that's a decline slope. Uh, right now, the decline rate of oil fields is somewhere around 18%. Uh, and the fracking is even faster. It's like a 30% decline slope. Mm -hmm. So uh, you have to think about, oh, okay, well, what does that look like? Uh, can we really do with half of this, half of that? So you start to think about, can we have a 20th century lifestyle in the 21st century? Can we maintain that with technology or green living or some other way, combination of permaculture and this and that. Well, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe, but you're going to have to get really creative really fast to be able to think of those terms. You're, you're definitely going to have to act, start acting sooner rather than later. There's yeah. no ifs or buts about yeah. the fact that you can't wait until we fall off the cliff to be like, oh, let's do something now. You're going to be in a bad position and you're going to have to sacrifice a whole lot of stuff. I mean, permaculture is permanent culture and it takes... A serious amount of time before your fruit trees grow into yeah. big, you know, large producing, mass producing fruit trees. And, and same with everything that you're doing. I mean, if you're going to set up, uh, if you're living in, in a northern region and you want to grow food during the winter, you have to kind of start setting this up today. And it seems like a lot of people in the world are on the, of the mindset that things are, are screwed up today. Like things are, have to begin happening. Um, but everyone is on a different, or seems to be on a different boat as to which direction or how we should go about that change. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned solar a lot, and I know you have a, a background in that. Is solar, do you think solar is the answer? Do you think, or is it wind, or is it a combination? What, 
what are the things that we can do today, um, energy-wise, I guess let's stick energy-wise, that, in your opinion, will will make a shift in probably the best possible way? Well, back in the early 70s, Bill Mollison, in his writings in Permaculture One and Permaculture Designers Manual and those kinds of books, was saying that the ethical use of the fossil fuel era, fossil fuels that we have remaining, is to take them and make um, post-fossil technologies with them, uh, to build windmills, mm-hmm. build photovoltaic cells, build things that will last for a while, durable things, uh, and to spend the last days of ancient fossil sunlight on those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, uh, that's, act- that's good advice. Uh, that'll take us a certain distance whether it can actually replace the consumer materialist lifestyle for the first world is very questionable. Yeah. Uh, most likely we're all going to take a notch down in our consumption patterns, mm-hmm. either by uh, uh, a graceful transition mode <laughs> or by rude awakening uh, with, uh, with blackouts and brownouts and all those kinds of things. Which one do you think is more likely? I'd say that just from what I've seen in the last 10, 20 years, going to various conferences like Copenhagen and Durban and... Cancun and uh, Doha, mm. that uh, it's probably going to be a rude awakening that's going to wake everybody up. Um, so, uh, you know, well, now, what does it look like in terms of renewable future? Yes, if you're putting on solar on your roof, if you're putting up a windmill, if you have that kind of energy, or if you have microhydro energy nearby, um, yeah, you're, you're ahead of the game. Uh, mm-hmm. You're much more resilient. You're likely to have a laptop that still works. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you look at the biggies, the Googles and the Microsofts, what are they doing? They're building dams on the Columbia River to power the um, web serving nets so that the internet can keep running. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's no longer going to be dependent on fossil fuels or nuclear power. You know, how many more Fukushima's is it going to take before nuclear power is something in history books? You know, it's probably not very many. And so. Uh, It'll be it'll be about uh, how many how much power does the Columbia Dam, dam generate? Uh, well, actually, that's something that's going to be increasing. All of the hydropower is going to be increasing because uh, one of the features of global warming coming soon to a neighborhood <laughs> near you is uh, greater water retention and greater rainfall. So worldwide, as an average, the rivers are going to run the water. Yeah. Plus, all the glaciers melting will give us a burst of, of water for a while. Yes. Uh, so uh, those those hydro dams are going to be producing a surplus. That's what we found this last year in Tennessee. So I'm on the Tennessee Valley Authority. We actually exchange energy. We sell power into the grid and get power back. Mm-hmm. And uh, so our power rates for buying back were were less this year. We actually got a subsidy for green power switch because of all the rainfall going into behind the Tennessee River dams. Interesting. There's um, there's something I heard about in Copenhagen. That was designed by uh, like a really um, uh, enthusiastic type of architect, um, and it's a uh, it's a power plant that recycles garbage and turns it into power. And the stats that he was giving was that like ninety six percent of Copenhagers don't pay for electricity. Why, if you're familiar with it, why isn't this technology replicated all across the world or even at least in the West? We, uh, in, us in Tennessee, we're pioneers in that. Uh, Nashville, Tennessee had its uh, thermal transfer plant, which was doing exactly that. It was taking the garbage out of the landfill from Tennessee, diverting it from going to landfill from the city of Nashville, going to a thermal transfer plant down by the river and heating the entire and powering the entire downtown area, co-generating heat and electricity for Mm -hmm. the entire downtown area. So all the hotels, convention centers, everything downtown Nashville, the Grand Old Opry Building, and uh, you know the Ryman Auditorium, all that was there, running off of. Um, uh, that thermal energy. Well, what did we learn from 20 years of that? Besides all of the tours of engineers from China and Korea and India and so on, was uh, great for tourism, but uh, but it was uh, it had negatives. And pretty soon you got to see grassroots organizations like Burnt, which was um, you know Nashvilleians organizing to stop the uh, thermal transfer plant, uh, and. Why? Well, dioxins uh, being at measurable levels in people's backyard tomatoes mm-hmm. uh, and um, those plastics and things, metals that crept through the shredders and crept through the sorters and sifters and got into the burn and then wound up in smoke and got covered over in a thin layer over Nashville residential neighborhoods. 
and the health impact has never really been assessed adequately, but you could probably end up doing epidemiological studies that would show you the infant mortality and so forth, so it translates into real deaths, just like nuclear power does. So, you know, um, can you do it in a clean way? Probably, but you're going to have to do it in a very cautious sorting of the input. Uh, and actually now, I just came from a conference on biochar, and we have industries springing up all over the world doing combined heat and power for municipalities that are looking at the woody biomass that goes into landfills and segregating that. Right. Uh, or not even getting into the landfill stage, but looking at paper mill waste, poultry litter, um, other sources that if left on their own would become carbon dioxide or methane in the atmosphere. So you're, you're stopping them from becoming greenhouse gases by intercepting the flow. And then you're uh, taking that and getting the heat energy off and doing something useful, producing power and heat from it. And then you're also winding up not with ash, which could be toxic like the thermal transfer plant's ash was, but it actually could be beneficial if it's a clean source. It comes out as a clean cinder, as uh, recalcitrant carbon, as biochar. And now you've got a soil amendment that actually makes it more resilient, that makes soils more resilient. They make it drought resistant. They uh, store up water when it rains and release it like a sponge when it's dry. Or they have a home for microbial life that improves the organic gardeners. Okay, and uh, is this like same problem uh, happening in Copenhagen as well? I haven't studied the Copenhagen operation, so I really couldn't tell you. Okay. Uh, Copenhagen is ahead of the game in many, many ways. Like, for instance, the bicycle paths and people there massively commuting on bicycles and having their independently set, um, um, set up uh, roads so that they don't compete with automobiles. Mm -hmm. And then the other one is, is uh, you know, mass transit. They are way ahead of it in terms of powering their mass transit on things like hydrogen and biofuels and having regular scheduled buses and trains to reach every distant place and get back into the city, and also uh, windmills and wind power that's just offshore. Right. Yeah, their wind power is off the charts. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's amazing, I mean, the, the only difference between Copenhagen, I guess, or Copenhagen is not just the only one, but the mindset of Copenhagen and, and Denmark and all these, um, I guess, northern European countries is they just have a conscious about what is what they're doing and what is happening. I mean, I think more so than just deal like more so than okay, let's build a whole bunch of solar panels and let's build as much wind energy and and staying up to current levels of consumption, right? Which is in our case four worlds or four planets, and I've heard estimates that say five planets, but but it's really reducing it down. You know, we're eating too much, we're consuming too much, we're buying too much. Every time something breaks, we just throw it away. We don't fix it. We don't, we don't have this mentality where we have to kind of be more conscious about the things that we do. And some people would argue that there, that comes with the fact that, you know, because of our cheap energy and cheap oil and all these things, we've had goods and services provided to us at, a, at, a, at way too cheap of a price. Mm -hmm. We're not paying the real cost of these things. Do you think there's an economic way that we can quantify some of these things and, and maybe add that to the price of, of, of pro products and goods and services. I don't know how much you know or have an opinion on that, but it seems like money and economics is clearly the motivating factor of our world today. If we're going to change our world, maybe we have to start changing the economics of our world and, and how those work. Do you have any thoughts or comments on that? Yeah, I actually have studied quite a bit on that area. I was uh, this year, earlier this year, at a, at a week-long retreat in Ireland for the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability mm -hmm. that meets every year and draws together economists from all over Europe uh, and who are, you know, thinking in these terms: what What's the path down? How is the How can we re-incentivize goods and services? Um, what's the you know the the model that we tend to follow? is the organic food model, which is that you put a premium on the product and people will pay a little bit more because it's healthier for you and provides other benefits. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's also the model in cool foods, and I'd love to talk more about the idea of cool uh, as a branding name. But uh, cool foods in Japan came out of this um, system where they wanted to um, reduce the the problem they were having with the loss of uh, farmland and loss of um, nature, 
They had uh, an area outside of farms before you get far up the mountain. It's called Satoyama. literally means second nature, and it's sort of a commons for farmers to use. They get bamboo out, and they go hunting there and things like that. So it's a common forest. And the Satoyama was being degraded because the, age, the population of Japan was aging, and so the people were leaving the farms, and the young people were leaving the farms and not coming back. And so the farmers were getting older, and they couldn't manage the Satoyama anymore. They weren't hunting, they weren't cutting the bamboo. And so they created a product line among the farmers co-ops uh, called Cool Veggie. Uh, and the idea was that they would uh, take the bamboo, make it into biochar, put the biochar in the soil. They would thereby reduce greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. They would sequester that for thousands of years uh, by putting it in the soil instead of the atmosphere. And uh, they would eliminate their bamboo overgrowth, which meant that the boars, wild boars went ravaging the rice fields and various other benefits. Mm -hmm. And they branded it in a way that um, Japanese consumers could say, oh, if I buy that product, I'm actually um, helping to save the climate and, and keep, it, keep the planet cool. So Cool Veg as a brand. Mm -hmm. and, so, and, and they did demographic studies and they found that you know, parents with uh, young children were more likely to buy their brand. And they pay a slight bit more for it, but then that goes to the farmer's co-op to make the whole program work. Okay, well that's the model of a slight premium. When you get into hard times where everybody's struggling and the amount of budget that your home goes, spends on food goes up in proportion and how much you're spending on rent and things, and you just don't have any money at the margins at all, then you have to go back and start buying at Walmart or wherever the food is the cheapest. And, and that's, the, that's the confounding variable there. Uh, that, that whole premium system, the organic food system, doesn't really work, that model of economic switching. Uh, and then you can ask, well, what about regulatory frameworks? How about uh, the FDA, in our case, or, or other government agencies in other countries stepping in and saying, well, we're going to insist that you grow organic, or we're going to insist that you do these practices that save the climate. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then the, and all products have to have that. But it has a tendency to raise the price because those, that switch makes more work for farmers and more in, uh, different kinds of devices that they didn't have before. So you're, you're stuck. Uh, we've spent the last hundred years trying to make things cheaper, more available, more mass-produced, using the econ economics of scale. And now we're, we're suggesting that we're going to switch somehow to a green product line that's, that can be competitive. And actually, it's not competitive because it doesn't have that, that kind of scale and it doesn't use all of that, that um, massive common denominator sourcing Mm -hmm. uh, of uh, of industrial products, and you know you, you're you're seeing the results of that mistake a hundred years ago in obesity, uh, mm -hmm. uh, high cholesterol and heart disease, and and uh, people with um, diabetes and childhood diabetes and all of these things that are all the products of you know too much high fructose corn syrup, too much bovine growth hormone. Well, yeah, it made more milk in the cows. But now you're having, you know, big fat people because they're eating bovine growth hormone uh, and getting it as children. And uh, polybisphenols A's. And, well, okay, the FDA really doesn't have to look into plastics, do they? Uh, but polybisphenol A, well, what does that do? Well, it changes your whole endocrine system so you don't recognize when you're, when you're, when you're full and you still be hungry and what? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so that's industrial, the industrial food system, but it applies to lots of products across the board, and we've gotten to, used to having things cheap so that we based the rest of our lives on having cheap consumer goods. Mm -hmm. Now if you raise the price of consumer goods, then your whole rest of your life goes out of balance. What you're paying in rent, what you're paying for various other things goes out of balance because the, the, the consumer goods prices have gone up. Well, what's the antidote to that? Actually, it's to begin to cut back on the use of consumer goods. So instead of going for highly processed things, you go for lower on the food chain, not just in foods, but in building materials for your home mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, get yourself a mortgage-free home by building it out of straw and clay. Um, put in a living roof rather than an air conditioner. Uh, mm -hmm. These kinds of things, you know, do things that uh, our grandparents might have understood really well, like having a rain barrel, uh, rather than pay more for your water bill. Mm -hmm. which is what's going to happen. And potentially reuse your water. Potentially. Yeah. I mean, reuse your gray water. Absolutely right. All, of, all these things that are old farming skills from our history, our past, 
and they have to be re refound, rediscovered again because we were in this burst of consumer era uh, that we're so now acclimated to. We've all lived in it since we were children. We're sort of like, this is the way things work. Uh, we have a summer camp at the Eco Village of the Farm every year. We've been doing it for 20 years, and we bring kids from Nashville. They would, we cherry-pick them out of the housing projects and the homeless shelters and the places where uh, their children are the most vulnerable mm -hmm. and bring them down for horseback riding and canoeing and you know hikes and, and nature walks and, and natural building, clay and cob and so forth. And uh, when we do that, uh, a lot of times the kids come to us do not get that food comes out of the garden. It's always come to them the in packages <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. that come from the grocery store. Maybe they've been to the grocery store, but they haven't never been, they've never seen a garden. So, Which is amazing. It is. And that just kind of shows how divorced we've become from the natural world that supports us. I mean, I love the movie WALL-E which shows this <laughs> class of Teletubbies sitting in front of screens mm -hmm. as the population of the Earth. Mm -hmm. uh, because you project out the trend line, that's where we're going. Uh, but actually, that trend is about to abruptly shift. And so you start to think about economics. How do economists look at this, and what is the sustainability of economics, and what's the actual path from here to there? And the shift, there are different uh, ideas being floated, um, contraction and convergence and... Uh, ways to uh, shift ways of of um, taxing uh, and mm -hmm. uh, the incentives that we build in with subsidies from governments and subsidies to industries of various kinds and shifting those to things that are going to help us instead of things that are going to hurt us and put mm -hmm. us in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. An example of that is something like the permanent fund in Alaska. Okay, so in Alaska, bless them, Many years ago, the oil company said we want to put uh, pipelines up to the North Slope and get some more uh, oil out of your, your state. And the Alaskans said, fine, but we want a royalty. Uh, and the royalty from the oil company is going into a permanent fund, which gives every Alaskan over the age of 16 $2,000 a year now. Uh, and that's a basic income to every Alaskan. Uh, and then, um, hmm. I mean, you can't exactly live on $2,000, especially in Alaska, but um, you, you can, it's a start, and for subsistence people, people who are living very close to the land do have gardens and greenhouses in the winter and so forth, maybe you can live on $2,000. But it's a subsidy that comes from that extractive resource, so the, the actual model to us is how about putting price tags on all of the non-renewables that mm -hmm. we're currently extracting, or the atmosphere, how much is the commons of the parking spaces for carbon in the atmosphere worth? And yeah. who's paying for that? We, uh, we had a conversation with Daniel Greenberg yesterday just about that, right? Earth deeds and, and trying to measure your ecological footprint and then kind of pay for it. Yeah. And I think that more people would pay for it if they knew anything about it to begin with. Like if they were taught it, if they, were, if they understood it, if they could calculate it themselves, that kind of stuff. Now, I know obviously... He himself and other people around the world are obviously working on that. Um, but I guess what the key thing that I mentioned there is education, mm -hmm. which is that, you know, and you mentioned this earlier, people don't know that food comes from gardens sometimes. They forget. Yeah. And we forget that the things that we do have consequences and we don't really understand them. We know about climate change, but we don't fully get it. We don't grasp it. What are your thoughts on maybe the education side of things? Uh, you know, you, you earlier you mentioned, and I, I wanted to, to come back on this as well. Cool, you know the cool veggie or whatever, right? And and the marketing and the branding and how it was sold to people basically worked. And in, in Japan, it seems like the educate and our side of things, and this is what we we're striving towards now is making the education available, making the knowledge available from people like you, from from people with lots of it, uh, information that they can spread and, and share. But also branding that as sexy. Mm -hmm. Now, I'd love to know what your thoughts are on, you know, a lot of people have a negative connotation of what marketing means or, or, or branding and all those things. Obviously, they've been used for corporations and stuff. What are your thoughts on that? And then what are your thoughts on education and how should we potentially shift our education to make this shift happen? Yeah. There's been... Um studies in Amherst, actually, the University of Massachusetts was one of the pioneers in this area of looking at 
the age of advertising and how we've used um, sex and other surrogates to sell things like cars and cigarettes. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas you go back a couple centuries and you know go back to the Sears Roebuck catalog of the mid 19th century, uh, things were sold on the qualities of durability mm -hmm. or uh, particular value. Uh, you know, the, uh, for the attributes of that particular thing. Mm -hmm. uh, now the genes are sold that make you look slimmer or give you something that's uh, um, an intangible quality of a brand that is associated with a particular celebrity. Mm -hmm. So you can be that celebrity, you know, something like that celebrity if you wear that brand, which is a, an external, not real, but it's sort of a construct that we have as a fashion. I've been looking at this whole area of fashion because I think this is a key uh, multiplier in as a social change agent. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's difficult. I talk to some activists and they say, I would never touch fashion. I just think it's awful. I just don't want anything to do with fashion world and the fashion waste in the fashion world and so on. But I look at it and it's like, okay, what is fashion really? Fashion comes around to tribal signaling. Mm -hmm. We are mammals that took an evolutionary tact, an evolutionary strategy long ago of becoming herds, groups, tribes that held together as a bunch to fight off larger, more potent predators in the wild, saber-toothed daggers and mastodons and things. And by being a group, traveling as a group of us, we were, you know, like the wildebeest crossing a river full of crocodiles. Maybe they pick off a few on the edges, but most of us would get across. So um, that signaling is done by um, the clothing that we wear. I am one of you. I am part of this tribe. This is my identity. I want to show you that I am your friend and I am like you because I am wearing your kind of clothing. Mm -hmm. I am wearing a necktie. This necktie does absolutely nothing for me. It doesn't hold up anything. Uh, it doesn't keep my neck from falling off. Mm -hmm. It has no function whatsoever, but it signals to you that I am prepared to be a cubicle slave in this particular <laughs> business, and uh, we'll, be, we'll do what the boss tells me. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, the, it's this, uh, this signaling, okay, and that's, that goes right on out to the latest Paris fashions or uh, right. a car that doesn't particularly do anything... Um, Aeronautic, or you know, um, uh, it doesn't aerodynamic. aerodynamic yes, yeah. not particularly aerodynamic, but it has a certain flair to it, like like uh, the the uh, the wings and the uh, fins that they used to put on cars in the fifties. So um, those kinds of things. It's like um, what the uh, the function really is a function of social communication, mm -hmm. uh, and. Okay, so how can we tap into that function? How can we tap? How can we communicate? And this idea of the cool food was one of those. It's like saying, mm -hmm. "I'm eating cool food, and it doesn't do anything more for me than uh, than a cabbage that's grown uh, without biochar." Mm -hmm. But uh, I'm eating cool slaw, not coleslaw, <laughs> uh, and my cool slaw is saving the planet. And uh, you know, I'm one of the people who wants to save the planet. Are you like me? Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's think about that. Um, can you have cool houses? Can you have cool power systems? Mm -hmm. Well, there's a new company called Cool Planet Biofuels that's going to be making carbon negative gasoline for the California market. And they've done the, run the numbers and they're going to take a huge amount of carbon from the atmosphere in their first few years of running by this process of switching the gasoline to a biofuel that makes biochar as a byproduct mm -hmm. and then giving that to the farmers who grow the crops that, for the fuel. And they don't want to compete with food, so they have to be careful in that respect. They don't want to have big refineries that are smelly and create pollution, so they're going to do it all on the farms. Uh, they're going to have mobile units that go farm to farm. Uh, to make this fuel, and then they're going to get it into the California market and run all these cool engines off of this cool biofuel, and they call it Cool Planet Biofuels. Well, that's the cool meme being extended now to transportation. Mm -hmm. So I've been talking lately, and I did a, I've done a, a poster presentation at a number of different conferences, like the Sustainability the, uh, Society for Ecological Restoration, uh, 
the Association for the Advancement of Sustainability in Higher Education and other kinds of groups like that, bioregionalists, on the idea of cool villages, eco-cool villages. Mm. So instead of saying, you know, um, eco-village is somebody that's interested in having a, a lifestyle that's going to be um, very good for the environment, well, eco-cool villages take it a step farther and say we are a carbon minus community. Uh, we actually, and I think I'm here in the serious community in Massachusetts and I'm surrounded by forest and I'm beginning <laughs> to think, you know, what's the net pri primary productivity of that and how do you contrast that with the actual uh, ecological footprint of all the residents here? Um, what's their um, fossil fuel use? What's their electricity use? What's their mm -hmm. uh, built environment? Is there asphalt? Is there uh, cement blocks? What are the different things that go into the buildings and the, the built environment here? What are the, what's the tourism component? How many people fly? Mm -hmm. What's their lifestyles? Okay, so if we start to do the math, uh, I'm, I'd be willing to bet that here, with the trees that are in this community, it's probably already carbon negative. Mm -hmm. No, it's an eco village. So it's becoming a holistic eco village. Yeah. Well, we can start to think about extending that to lots of different places. Well, what's the advantage? Another advantage of that is, I've always said if you can get a Japanese, a group of Japanese schoolgirls to like something, chances are you can start a fad. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, how can we get <laughs> memes that are viral, right? How Absolutely. do we? How do memes become viral? And Malcolm Gladwell in his book The Tipping Point talks about well, they have certain aspects they they are sticky. They 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 remain in your mind. You can't get them out like a nasty advertising jingle. Mm -hmm. um, they they have. Um, they, they, they are spread by social mavens, people who have lots of contacts and networking talents. Yeah, and opinion leaders. The opinion leaders, all that mm -hmm. kind of thing. So if you start to work, work with these different components of what makes a meme viral, let's get the cool meme viral. Let's get, I'm carbon negative, are you? Mm -hmm. What's your, you know, this is my signaling. This is my version of the necktie. I'm signaling to you that I'm carbon negative. Can we can we agree on that? Maybe cool tattoos that say that, or something, you know. Absolutely. Earrings that say I'm a cool person. You know? <laughs> it needs a brand. Yeah. It just needs a like in the same way that shopping at Walmart is advertised. Yeah. You, we need like buying or eating organic is is uh, is just as cool. Yeah. And. I think policy and all those kind of things obviously play a role. Like if, if certain foods were taxed and then other foods weren't, if yeah. certain foods were subsidized and other things weren't. Food is the example here, but the same with fashion, okay? All of these things, if we, if we start adopting these models in terms of policy, that would work. But the education, I feel like there's maybe a little bit of a lack of, of understanding of what people's carbon footprint really is and then what that really means. Because even myself or, or probably some of us sitting here, or, or some of the viewers, they understand that we're in, we're carbon positive, that we're we're in the bad side of it, and we're we're trying to work towards it, but we don't know what we should do. And sometimes there's little drastic things that we can change that would that would really offset it in a in a great way. It's, it I think there's maybe probably a lack of, of that information that's out there, yeah. and I think the more that information was put in front of people's faces, the more that the fat of carbon cool or whatever, yeah. or the fat of green or sustainability, whatever you want to call it, would gain traction. Yeah, I don't uh, know how to really do that. I personally do it by um, having an Excel spreadsheet of my uh, electricity consumption that I chart the meter every month and every year. Mm -hmm. I, I look at my odometer on my car. Uh, I know exactly how much I spent on this and that, uh, air travel, rail travel, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I can add all that up at the end of the year and say, and I can go to, to any number of conversion programs that are available online and convert that to my carbon footprint yeah. or the number of trees it would take to offset it or those kinds of things. All of, all of those conversion tables are readily available. But what gets people to do it? You know, how many people are willing to go through that exercise and keep that count? I mean, there's enough things in our lives that are keeping us busy. Of course. So um, it seems like an app would be the best way. Yeah, it's or we bring us all the time. Like, uh, yeah. you remember that there's a the recent film called In Time, where they everybody yes. has this little embedded counter, this I digital love counter. That movie. Okay, well maybe we should all have little embedded digital counters or or, or <laughs> orphans that. Uh, that keep track of our carbon consumption, mm -hmm. uh, so that we have a, like a wristwatch, uh, and, and we just are always knowing what, what our carbon consumption every year is. 
That's no, this is, that's seriously an interesting avenue. I mean, thinking about a, an app that would keep yeah. track of like just how much you're moving. Yeah. Okay. Based on like you're you're, you're moving around, just taking into account that and the carbon footprint of that. Yeah. And then, or, or an app that would be more intuitive where you can enter in, oh, meeting this, I'm meeting that, the blah, blah, blah. And you slowly but surely become more conscious of it. Yeah. The more conscious you become of it, the more you solve the problem. Yeah. I mean, the first yeah. step to losing weight, for example, is admitting that you're maybe overweight and maybe it's that you're eating too much it's and you need to exercise yeah. more. Yeah. The second you have this consciousness about it, that's when you see these results. Yeah. People start saying, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. And they do it to the point where they maybe went even, I don't want to say too healthy, but what they... Yeah. They go beyond their goals sometimes, and that's that's exactly what we need in the great movement. Well, right? I think, like, I think you, you're, you're onto something here because, you know, we're seeing uh, smartphones shrink down into the size of wristwatches now. Well, you could have a wristwatch app mm -hmm. that uh, knew when you're in a car or in an airplane mm -hmm. and was keeping track of that. It was tallying it up uh, and gave you, a, a, a you know, maybe what you're consuming, uh, what you're eating, what you're... Uh, doing in your daily life? Are you watching a television? Those kinds of things. It could track all of that, and uh, and you don't have to really enter it. It could all do it silently in the background, uh, and then it, and you get a tally that you know prints out uh, or shows up on your screen and tells you how you did this this month, and you begin to have a carbon diet. Yeah, I've been looking a lot lately at why people do what they do, and it seems that there's kind of two main components. People are going to do what's easiest, and people are going to do what's most pleasurable. Yeah. And in order to really create a shift in the way that people are doing something, they need to have, you know, kind of this this awareness of what it is that's actually happening, you know, the, well, that's the right. cost that's occurring, so they can know what is actually pleasurable. When you're offsetting yeah. all of those costs, you have... You have no idea of the impact. And well, that's the solution it. that we're talking about yep. right now is something that would be incredibly easy yep. to build that awareness, to cause them to recognize that, you know, this is where I can change what I'm doing and that's ultimately going to be more this is This is what, they, what you learn in, in weight loss. This is what you learn in fitness training. You need metrics. You need a feedback. You need to know what's going on yeah. and see the trend and to understand how, how are you doing along the road that you're taking. And so without that, without that feedback, without knowing, everything's so, so hidden in the consumer world that you don't have the feedback, you don't sense the need for, the, for, for something to change. So the greenhouse is doing its job right now? The greenhouse <laughs> is doing its job. I'm feeling the effects of that. We're definitely getting a solar input. In fact, we've got excess. They <laughs> harvested some fashion other than sweat glands. Oh, yeah. Um, well, that's why we keep those doors open. Yeah. And it heats the building. Sure. Normally, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I thank you so much for, I mean, I think we could just end it here and then we'll, we'll have some kind of other conversation at some point. Yeah, for sure. Okay, yeah. um, we would love to know where we can find out more about the work that you've done. Maybe plug some, you guys have a website, I'm assuming. Yeah, well, I, I put all my PDFs, like I've been going around doing these conferences, like I'm going to be at Bioneers in November for the Great Lakes Bioneers in Chicago. Mm -hmm. uh, then I'm going to the International Permaculture Convergence in Cuba. And so if you want to follow me, you want to see the videos, or you want to see the PowerPoints that I use when I go to those, um, I, I put them all onto thegreatchange.com. The right. Great Change, one word, uh, and so all of my all of the things that are free downloads there, all uh, Creative Commons, and also I have a, a YouTube site, uh, Peak Surfer, Peak Surfer on YouTube. Uh, so my videos of my performances or different things that I'm doing, like I've, I just recent my most recent edition there was the was a video I showed at the conference on biochar, mm -hmm. which was a, a video I call it's a six minute video called Fire Hose Horticulture. <laughs> Fire hose horticulture shows you how to how we make compost tea in large quantities like thousand gallons, and nice. then you and then put it on the back of a truck, take it to a, a field or an orchard or a garden or a living roof, and with a fire hose, blast, blast it all over <laughs> in a short amount of time to a rock and roll soundtrack. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Very awesome. Okay, so great. So we'll link all that stuff in the description below. Um, Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and uh, I don't, I don't doubt we're gonna have you again on the podcast. Definitely. I mean, with all the conferences you go to, you're just a very knowing man, and every every month it's like he's gonna have more knowledge. More, for us. more news. Okay, have a good one. <laughs>